You are listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. Hope that you're here to have a great Father's Day today and just a good time. It's a great day to be in church and be all together uh, here in this room gathered. Hey, I want to uh, just let you know that a couple things um, in this series, we're trying to teach men a couple things, how to handle threats, how to gain confidence, how to get a brotherhood around you, and develop uh, personal relationships that are going somewhere positive. And we're not cavemen, but our strength is found in a man cave. I don't know about you, but this week, uh, I just let me inform you, I got my PhD this week. Um, Post-hockey disorder this week because hockey ended and now I'm now I'm stuck in PhD and uh, and that happens and sometimes you know we think that when things yeah yeah and I you you know like I have a master of divinity I think I'm all good from here on out I don't need um, you know to actually go for a PhD but I uh, want to just look and just say there are times that you and I run to a man cave it feels like maybe hockey and you're like now what am I going to do what do you run to where do you kind of escape to but a man cave we're going to redefine during this series we're going to redefine it as a place where you go to seek God, where you go to get insight, to get wisdom. as a place where you, your soul, gets refreshed with the living God, where you are learning, where you are growing. It's not the place where he blows you away or he buries you or he burns you. It's a place where you have relationship with the living God, where you connect with him in a tight way as God rebuilds you as a man. And when men are pushed to their limit, we typically resort to fight or flight, right? If you ever had your kids go through self-defense, you go to the little dojo, and the karate instructor will be like, you know, you get in the position, and he's like, you can either fight, but the first thing you want to do is like, if you can, run away, run away to fight another day, um, you know. But could you imagine if you took your kids to the, to the dojo, and the karate instructor said, all right, gets in the position, and he's like, okay, kids, now hide. And all the kids run away and like hide in corners. You would, like, take your kids out of that self-defense course, and you would, right? Because anytime we hear the word, like, hide, not, not fighting or flighting, but, but hiding, every man in the room just cringes a little bit. Because hiding is about the least manly thing that a man can do, right? We understand fight. We understand flight. Somebody all gets up in your face, and you're either going to fight them or you're going you're gonna to run away and remove yourself keep control of your emotions, you're going to do one of those two things. But hide is not very manly, unless you're a sniper, and in that case, you're fighting, which is cool, because, you know, you're a sniper, and you're hiding in your ghillie suit, and, and you look very cool. But when a man loses his confidence, and he hides, and most men, at certain times in our life, we lose our confidence, and we hide. We might hide in our distraction. We might hide in our work. We might hide our faith. We might hide in entertainment or isolation. But one way or another, you and I hide. It might be in your sin. It might be removing yourself from people. It might be coming overcommitted in too many areas so you don't slow down enough to consider the real issues and ask the deep question. You might keep noise around you all the time because you just don't want to slow down and get quiet. And ask the deep questions. Today, we're going to look at the issue of hiding. If you have your Bibles, open with me to Judges chapter 6. It's in the Old Testament, Judges chapter 6. And let me give you a little bit of the background there. 
just so you understand, I'll give you a fill in the blank and then I'll give you just the background of the text. And the fill in the blank that we're going to look at this morning is that men live oppressed when they forget their identity. Men live oppressed when they forget their identity. What had been happening with the people of Israel? They were, they were the people of God and Israel is a somewhat young nation and at this time they, have not, they don't have a king. No kings have ever existed at this time in history in Israel. What God would do is he would raise up judges at certain times in Israel's history to be like a prophet of God, to bring the word to the people and give some leadership. But Israel was a theocracy. That means they were not a democracy. Uh, they, they were a theocracy. That means they, God was their head. They, were, they would follow the Lord. He was God and they would follow him. But the, like us, there's many times that they would wander away from the living God. And at that time, God would raise up a judge to correct the people and get them back on track because they had lost their point of direction. And that's what takes place right here in Judges chapter 6, beginning with verse 1. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites because the power of Midian was so oppressive. The Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Okay, so just time out. Just let me give you a quick picture here. The Midianites were a nomadic people. So they would travel around. They wouldn't plant their own crops and, and get their own stuff. What they would do is wait for the peoples around them to plant their crops, and then they would swoop in, being too numerous, devour everything like a herd of locusts, and then they would go on to the next place. So every year when Israel was out there to just plant their crops and make a living, they would swoop in and take it. And that's the condition that they find themselves. So the Israelites would hide. They wouldn't fight. They would resort to flight, and then they would hide up in the mountain, in the man caves, in the clefts, and in the hills. goes on and says this, Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, the Malachites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land. They ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock in their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. And Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out finally to the Lord for help. And when the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. The Israelites and their men forgot whose they were. And they stopped listening to God. So God sends them a prophet who would remind them who they are and who they are to follow. It's really like they, they lost their north star. When you would navigate on the high seas, you would, you'd find the north star. And once you found the north star, you could begin to utilize that to navigate between the north star at night and the horizon of the sun and the horizon during the day, and you would navigate. But have you ever in your life lost your north star? Have you ever in your life lost your sense of direction? 
And so now you're running to some things and you're hiding from other things and you're running to different areas and you've lost your sense of direction. You're looking for direction in all the wrong places, but you're not finding the way that you should go. And that's the condition where Israel finds themselves as they're trying to navigate the hardship. But what they're finding is we can't navigate it. Nothing's changing. It's all staying the same. They whoop us every year. You and I have triggers that make us avoid fighting, that make us lose because we lose confidence. The triggers make you and I lose confidence. It might be shame. It might be hard living. It might be recurring losses. Maybe in your business every year it's like we lost again. We lost again. We, if we could just get a year where we get really ahead, it would help. We just, we're right on the edge, and you just feel like, wow, it's just wearing us down. It might be turnovers in your life. What are the triggers that make you hide? When you and I experience certain triggers, we run away. We hide. We, in fact, oftentimes we'll sever relationships as we looked at last week, and we'll isolate. But when you and I hide in our stuff, what are we hiding from? See, the people in your family, men, they oftentimes will identify when you're hiding. Maybe it's your kids are overhearing you on a phone call and they hear the excuses that you're giving and they realize dad's hiding from who he needs to be or who he, who he ought to be right now. Maybe at the company picnic, you're there and you're mixing it up with people and, and you're not the same man there that you are at home and, and all of a sudden you see this conflict of, well, that's, dad's not being his strong self there that he often represents at home and they see you hiding and maybe there are times that they just see you hiding in isolation. They want you to be there. But in that time, in that moment, because of the triggers, you just feel like you can't. You're hiding. This last week, we hosted Rayleigh's Leadership Summit. So Rayleigh's a grocery store chain in the area, Rayleigh's, Bel Air, Knob Hill. They were here. They had over 400 people all over this room, kind of like right now. And it was just filled up, and they had this leadership summit here, and we were just so glad to open up and utilize the facility for them. And they had a, a, a Christian author come in and speak to their leadership summit. His name is John Gordon, and he wrote different leadership fable books, which are really huge. You see it right there, like uh, the Soup, Seed, Energy Bus, uh, the No Complaining Rule, uh, Training Camp. You may have read some of these and not realize that that was author, but he was here speaking at the Rayleigh's uh, event. And one of the things that he said this, he, he says this, he says, if you're complaining, you're not leading. In other words, the moment that you and I begin to complain, we stop leading. We're now reacting, right? We're complaining to what's going on. We're dissatisfied with what's going on. And now we're just kind of reacting. We're not leading any longer. And that's exactly what Israel was doing. They weren't leading anymore in the land. They were reacting to what was happening in the land. And they were running away and they were hiding. They had lost their confidence. And there's got to be a better way. There's got to be a better way for you. There's got to be a better way for me to walk into godly manhood. If you're taking notes today, catch this. Men live confidently when you investigate and believe who God says you will be instead of who you are right now. You're going to take some time. You're going to investigate. You don't just take it right away like first time God says something. You go, oh, yeah, that's me. But that you take some time, you investigate, and you choose. You come to a point of conflict. You come to a point of action. You have to choose. Will I believe 
who God says I will be, or will I continue to believe who I am right now, that that's going to carry on forever? That who I am right now is not going to get any better. In fact, who I am right now is probably going to get worse and worse and worse the older and the longer I live and the more life experience I have. But I have a choice. Do I believe who God says I will be and the work that he's doing inside of me? Or will I choose just to rest in who I am at the moment? Israel was right there. And we introduce a young man named Gideon. If you look with me at Judges chapter 6, verse 11, the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah, that's Ophrah, not Oprah, that belonged to Joash the Abiziorite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Now let me just time out right there. What's he doing? He's hiding. Here's Gideon. He is threshing wheat. Well, what do you, where do you thresh wheat? You go to the top of a hill where there's wind, and you take all your wheat up there, and, the, and you take the, the fork, and you throw it up in the air, and all the chaff blows away, all the sticks and everything, they all blow away, and the seeds fall to the ground. So you keep doing that until finally you have all the wheat in a pile. Well, what's he doing? He's in a wine press. He's in a circular, round press for grapes that all have walls all the way around. He's hiding there and he's tossing his stuff up and the seeds are falling down and he's throwing this up. He's, he's hiding in the wine press. By the way, when it says in the scripture in Old Testament like this, when it says the angel of the Lord and the angel doesn't bring a message from God, uh, scholars believe that when it says the angel of the Lord in this context that it's the pre-incarnate Christ. That it's God himself come to speak to Gideon. It says this in verse 12, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us to the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him. See how it says that? The Lord turned to him, not this angel. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied. But how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. And the Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down the Midianites, leaving none alive. And Gideon replied, If now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. So Gideon, full of sarcasm, full of a little bit of cynicism because of his life experience, he basically just says, I need to check out that you are who you say you are. Because here's the beautiful thing. If I'm convinced that you are who you say you are, then I can believe what you say about me could come true. But first I have to check out who are you? Who are you? And he's taking his time. He's investigating to believe who God says he will be. So what does he do? He brings back an offering. He brings back some meat, he brings back some bread, some other stuff, and he lays it before the Lord, and the Lord touches it with his staff, and fire comes down and burns it up, and then the Lord disappears. 
And in that moment, Gideon knows, okay, that's God. this was God who just met with me. But there's some things he's learning along the way that I think you and I could learn as well. Hard circumstances do not mean that God has abandoned you. Is life hard sometimes? Yes, life is brutal sometimes. It's hard. It's unrelenting. There aren't guarantees in this life like we'll see in the next life. But just because life is hard does not mean that God has abandoned you, that he walks with you through the valley of the shadow of death, that he will never leave you, he will never forsake you. But sometimes we, like Gideon, say, hey, we've heard the prophet come back and say, did not the Lord lead the people out of Egypt? And he's going, okay, if that's the case, why are we in such a hardship? It's a fair question, isn't it? God's not threatened by our fair questions. But he wants to meet you where you're at. And wants to lead you to a better place. You need to realize this next fill in the blank. It may be the whole sermon for some of you. There may be nothing else that, that comes along here today that really just strikes you. This may be the message that God intends for you today. And what you just need to hear because of your life experience. Because of your family. And that's this. That God is not intimidated by your family heritage. This is great news. I mean, for some of you in this room, it's Father's Day, and you're looking back, and you're saying, well, my father was absent. Maybe he just wasn't there. He was present, but not accounted for. You know what I mean? Maybe he just wasn't there. Maybe all the men in your family get divorced, and you think, well, maybe then, then it's just the way it's going to happen. All the men I know in my family, maybe then I am going to get divorced too. Maybe for you, you're the only Christ follower in your whole family that everybody else is like, the Bible, uh, yeah. Everyone else is like, oh, you go to church? Okay, yeah, whatever. But you're the only one following Christ. And you look at it and you go, God, this is my family. I was born into this family. None of them believe. And you're just looking at it. And, and God is not intimidated by your family heritage. Maybe you never knew your dad. Obviously, we've all had a dad in this room. But maybe you never knew who your dad was or didn't get a chance to know your dad. Perhaps your dad was the very person who robbed you of your confidence, men. That he was the one always critical. He was the one always overbearing. He was always the one who just, maybe he just ignored you and didn't give you the time of day. And that robbed your confidence because it's like he just wouldn't give you attention, love, respect. Maybe for some of you, you had a good dad, a great dad. And maybe your dad has died. Maybe your dad is, has gotten old and feeble and dependent, and you're having to navigate and walk those roads right now. But I want to let you know that God is not intimidated by your family heritage. God often picks the most unlikely man to actually undo a family heritage. I don't know if you know that. God doesn't pick the strongest man in the family. He usually picks the most unlikely man to undo the heritage of his family. To basically come along and say, I want to make a better second half of the story compared to what your heritage is, and I've chosen you. And you're saying, who am I? I mean, look, at, look with me again at what Gideon says in verse 15. He says, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. So of, of the 12 tribes of Israel, there's Manasseh. And, and of those 12 tribes, all the clans, all the clans of Manasseh, mine is the weakest. And then he says, and I'm the least in my family. So in other words, we're the weakest, and then of all the men in my whole family, I'm the, I'm the weakest one. 
I'm the least. I wouldn't say he's weak. I mean, he's out there threshing weed. He's probably building some good muscle. But he's saying, I'm the least. How many of you have seen the movie Kung Fu Panda? Good movie? Yes. In that movie, Uguay takes his little stick and he points his stick at the panda and he says, you are the dragon warrior. And everybody looks and there's a panda there and they go, seriously, a panda? I mean, that, that's all it is? And even the panda's like, who, me? And he looks around, you know, he turns back. He's like, he doesn't think it's, it's him. He's thinking, I'm the least of my family. I don't even know in the movie who my dad is. Later, when he fights an antagonist, the antagonist comes and goes, him? He's a panda. And he doesn't believe it because he's thinking it's just the least. Like, really, that's the dragon warrior is a, is a panda bear? But that didn't originate with that movie. It really goes back to a story like Gideon. Because God writes the epic stories of life in people's lives, real people's lives. And the angel of the Lord shows up and calls him mighty warrior. And he's like, uh, you sure you got the right wine press? Catches him hiding. Meets him right where he is. Doesn't wait till he has it all together and is strong and is starting to get a little band of brothers around him. No, meets him in his hiding right where he is. Third thing we do is take time to discern God talking to you. Discern God talking to you. Like, how do I know? How do I know that God is talking to me? Well, in his word, we can be very clear. And, and it's not just one verse in the Bible. It's taking the whole counsel of the Bible. We look at the whole counsel of the Bible. This is the filter by which we discern whether what we're understanding in our conscience and then in reading God's word, both are the voice of God speaking in our lives. So we're going to discern that. And that's what happens right here. Gideon begins to walk that presence. He's like, i got to make sure that I'm listening to you. So he says this in Judges 6, verse 36. Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, look, I'll place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. And if there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you have, will save Israel by my hand as you said. He goes on, and this is what happened. Gideon rose early that next day. He squeezed the fleece, and he wrung it out, the dew, and it was a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, do not be angry with me. Let me make one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. But this time, make the fleece dry and make all the ground covered with dew. And that night, God did so. Only the fleece was dry, and all the ground was covered with dew. What is he doing? He just says, okay, I understand, all, first of all, that you say who you are. We, we understood that when you lit up the fire of the sacrifice. But now I need to just make sure that you're actually telling me to do what you said to do. And he's, he's taking time to listen to God. And people like downplay that he tested God this way. And he, you know, people will talk about you know, that you use your fleece. It's like Christianese to mean you just sought God a little more deeply and tested him. But the truth is this, that he is seeking God. And this isn't a precedent. God is not saying to you and me, okay, when you want to know something, you get a piece of wool and you go out in your yard and you put it down in your drought lawn and see if it's wet by morning. That's not what God is saying, right? It's not a precedent. In fact, the only precedent in the Old Testament that God gives you and me to test him in 
is with the tithe. He says, test me in this. Bring the first and the best into the storehouse and see if I don't throw open the gates of heaven and meet your needs. What he's saying is this. You test me. Test me with your money, which I'll be honest with you, for most of us in this room is a lot harder than just using a piece of wool, isn't it? But God says, test me. Test me in that. In other words, now that I've declared who you are, you test me with giving God the tithe and then see if he doesn't meet all your needs with the 90%. We give God the first and the best, and we trust him with the rest. And that's how it works. And we begin to test, and we begin to see, okay, God, you are who you say you are, and frankly, you'll do what you said you were going to do. That's the question that Gideon's asking. Will you do through me what you said you will do? And he is. Let me give you three tests. They're on your outline already filled in to discerning God's voice. First is the test of the Bible. Again, this is the filter through which we discern what we're sensing God is telling us to do. Maybe in your conscience you're sensing God to tell you to do something. But we all hear stories about people who are like, God told me to go and do something crazy. Maybe shoot people or do something really weird. And we all go, we look at the fruit and we go, not even close. That was, that was small g God talking there. That was you talking to you or that was the evil one talking to you. That was the suggester talking to you. That was not the Lord God. We use the Bible. We say, does it contradict Scripture? God is not going to call you in your life to pimp your children. He's just not going to do it. He's not going to say, sell your children into sex trafficking. Yet all around the world, there are people who are sold into sex trafficking. God's going to be the one, the church is the one, who frankly is leading the charge and responding to that very issue because of what we see in the Bible. So if you're like, God, what's going to be my occupation? What do you want me to do? God's going to say, obviously, if opportunities came up that are against me, you're going to know it because of the whole of Scripture. And then in other areas, you're going to have freedom. You're going to have freedom. You could choose to do that. You could be a farmer. You could do this. You've got, you've got freedom to, to work. Choose, and I'll be with you. You've got freedom in those areas. But he's not going to ask you to do what's against Scripture. Second one is the test of time. That is unchanging beyond my moods. Or my emotions. You know, sometimes you get all caught and sweat up, uh, swept up in different things. And, and maybe you are, are, were making a big purchase. And maybe you told God, God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, you told, maybe you told your wife, man, that, you know, I'm going to seek God before making this big purchase. So you're like, Lord, we need a new car in the family. And I just, I just know you've set aside that Ferrari for me. <laughs> and you're like, I'm going to listen. In your heart, you're like, yeah, go ahead, do it. And then you're like, that's it, Thank, praise the Lord, you know, and you, no, you, you didn't even give it a test of time, it, it was, you were caught up in the moment, it was your moods, it was your emotions, and men, let me tell you, especially, it's so important for you and I, men of action, to slow down and to give it the test of time. And third is the test of peace, that God gives you a test of a, a confidence and now, i got to let you know, it's, it's rarely 100%, because if it were 100%, it wouldn't require faith, would it? See, when we talk about a test of peace, we're not looking to God for God. Give me 100%. Give me a guarantee that nothing bad will happen. That's our comfort speaking. God is going to ask you and I to do great things, but it's still going to require faith. Otherwise, we don't need him. And God's not interested in that kind of relationship. He's going to grow your faith. And that's what he's doing right here with Gideon. Gideon's saying, I'm putting the fleece out just to say that I know who you are, and now I'm going to say, is it true that you're going to do what you do to me? But once he's done the fleece, now 
He has a confidence. Because he's taken the time to seek God, because he's taken the time to listen to the Lord, investigate, is this God? Now he has a confidence that will be infectious with everybody else. John Gordon said this, faith and fear both occupy or believe a future that hasn't happened yet. So on the one end, you have faith. On the other end, you have fear. But both are in regards to a future that hasn't happened yet, right? You and I have a choice. Am I going to choose faith or am I going to choose fear? And fear will often make us go backwards. Faith will make us go forward. And he says this, make no mistake, optimism is a competitive advantage. Sometimes people think that people who are optimistic are naive and they're just weird, but optimism is a competitive advantage. It really is. I mean, who are you going to listen to in the locker room? It's halftime, your team is down, and you go in the locker room, and there's one guy who goes over there, and he's sulking, he sits down on the bench, and he's blaming everybody around there, and he's just negative and saying, we're the worst team ever, we got to, come on, let's go, and, and he's just, you know, mad, and he's mad at everybody else. Are you going to follow that guy, or are you going to follow the guy who's like, listen, Guys, we can do this. we got to pull together. In fact, I believe we'll win. In fact, if you don't believe, you just get on my back, and I'll carry you with the belief I have. But let's go. We can win this game. You're going to follow the guy who's optimistic. Optimism is a competitive advantage. It's huge. Steph Curry, champion of the 2015 NBA championship Golden State Warriors. Yeah, any Warriors fans in here? Uh, any, oh yeah, we got a Warriors shirt there, very good. Any, any Warriors fans in here from like, say, the last two weeks? <laughs> yeah, I go Warriors, right? You know, Fairweather friends, there's a lot of people here. In fact, I, I got to be honest, my, my wife, she gave me permission to say this, but my wife was like, I, I didn't even know there were Golden State Warriors. Okay, <laughs> she grew up in Colorado, all right? They had the Nuggets and they were not good for most of her life there, so... You know, she just didn't know. But, like, all of a sudden you become Warriors fans. Well, he said this. Steph Curry said, every game, I try to use it as an opportunity to witness. I try to do a little signal every time I make a shot as a way to preach the message in little ways that I can. Each game is an opportunity to be on a great stage and be a witness for Christ. When I step on the floor, people should know who I represent, who I believe in. In fact, when he designed a shoe with Under Armour, I don't know if you've seen it, but on the bottom of the shoe, it's got the, the letters 413. It's got the numbers 413, which come from Philippians 413, which says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And Steph Curry says, it's also my mantra, how I get up for games and why I play the way I do. So right there, that optimism, not just in my own strength, my own power. He's not being naive in the sense of without God's backing, just come on, guys, let's go beat the Midianites. That's not what Gideon's doing. But that because of his faith in the Lord and seeking the Lord, he's ready to move forward. What's the trouble with men? The trouble with men is that more often we try to do it by our own strength. And I gotta let you know that men, we live oppressed when we trust our own strength. You wanna know when we're oppressed? We're oppressed by our sin. When are we oppressed? By our fear. It's when we try to rely on our own strength. It's a person who on their own strength says, I will never beat this thing. It's a person who in their own strength says, I will never change. It's a person who in their own strength says, this is too big for me. That you and I, we live oppressed. God's got some words for us about that. Chapter 7, beginning with verse 2. The Lord said to Gideon, 
you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, or Israel will boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Let, me. let me just pause right there for a minute. Do you hear what God is saying? He's not saying that Israel will take the glory from me. He's saying they will boast against me. When God does a great work and we take the glory, guess what we're doing? We are boasting against God. He did the work, but you and I were trying to take the glory. He's God says, I can't, there's too many men here. There's all these men. By the way, there's 32,000 men that Gideon goes out and rounds up to go fight the Midianites. It is a great group of dudes. And he's like, let's go, let's go beat them up right now. And God says, you got too many men. He's like, well, I thought these were good. And he goes, why? Because Israel will say we did it. We didn't really need God. We did it in our own strength. And men, that's one of our greatest downfalls, isn't it? I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it in my own strength. And when you and I do it in our own strength, we're just going to live oppressed. You know why I know this? Because for Gideon and all his friends, they lived oppressed for all these years in their own strength. Their own strength had already made the verdict. It already shown what they'd done. They weren't just in need of somebody to rally them. They were in need of the power of God, and so are you. goes on and says this. Now, announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left while 10,000 remain. And it's interesting that God dismissed the people who chose fear over faith. They're out of here. Go home. 22,000 of them, the majority, left. 10,000 remain. But the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will thin them out for you there. If I say, this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told them, separate those who lap the water with their tongues as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. 300 of them cupped their hands, lapping like dogs. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites, 9,700 men, home, but kept the 300 who took over the provisions and the trumpets of the others. Crazy, right? Men, when you and I follow God, other people will think that you are naive. When you follow the living God, other men will look at you and say, oh, one of the, you're religious, I see. Oh, one of those guys. They'll think, man, that you're just naive. Oh, you believe in something you've never seen. They think you're naive. You know why many businesses hire really, really young people? Some top businesses, Google, others, hire young people because they still believe. They've not been cultured over the time to, to get more cynical and to understand how great the opposition is and the realities of life. They get them while they're young and they help them maybe to innovate and then the people who've been around a long time are the ones who basically see it through to make sure that it's going to work in the marketplace. They get it through and so the workforce is strengthened by the nativity of the young person. Just be naive enough to see that anything is possible. I mean, that's okay, right? Most of the people who are successful were just naive enough to believe that they could be successful. 
They were just naive enough to believe that they could make a discovery that would make a breakthrough. And they did. What about you? So what happens? That night, they do a night attack on the Midianites. They go out, they surround them. They blow 300 trumpets all at the same time. It's this noise that comes up. And they're like, ah! And they have jars, and they take them off of the torches. They throw them on the ground. It makes a big crash. The Midianites get freaked out. They suddenly see themselves surrounded with torches. And they begin to try to fight and try to flight, but they end up just fighting each other. God causes a great confusion among them. They start killing each other like the Israelites haven't do anything. And then finally, after they've been killing each other a while, they finally make a break in the circle and they run for it. And it's then that the Israelites, for the first time, pursue them and cause their downfall. And go from being cavemen who had run away when they were oppressed by the Midianites to being free men, no longer oppressed because of the power of God. They had confidence to go from hiding to fighting and then from fighting to freedom because of the power of God. Men, listen, your priority this week, your top priority, you've got two fill in the blanks right here. It's this, guide my relationship with God to a place where I hear. Get alone with God. Guide your relationship with God to a place where you're hearing him in his word, where you're beginning to say, God, speak to my inner man. And give me ears to hear what you're saying to my conscience. I may hear nothing with my ears. But God, what are you saying to me? And God will reveal himself to you. In your program, you've got a card that looks like this. It's called the Marks of Manhood. I want you to take this out for a minute. Men, this is not a grading scale. But you and I need a picture. And there are eight marks of manhood on here. And what I want you to do is I want you to decide which of these eight marks of manhood you want to begin to work on, that you're saying, I will take responsibility for this area in my own life. So you are saying, no one else is pressuring me. I'm not doing it because I have to. No one else is you know, belittling me to do this. You're basically saying, I take responsibility for it. And maybe for you, it's economic maturity. And you're saying that I would be, have economic maturity sufficient to hold an adult job and handle money. And you realize, I got to get a handle on this. So I'm going to take the Financial Peace University class. I'm going to begin to get my finances in order. I'm going to begin to risk faith over fear. And I'm going to begin to honor God in these ways. And you're saying, I'm going to do this as a man. I'm going to take responsibility this year for this. Could you imagine what a different man you'd be in one year? Could you imagine if you did relational maturity? Relational maturity sufficient to understand and respect others. Maybe you've gotten so insulated and so isolated that you're pretty disrespectful to other people or maybe you've been isolated so long, you're like, God, I, I, I just need a friend. And maybe this is the year that you begin to build intentional relationships with other people and begin to work on the relational aspects of your life. Could you imagine what a different man you'd be a year from now? Any one of these eight that you could do, and could you imagine if you took one a year, what a different man you would be in eight years? You would not be recognizable as the same man you are today. See, you and I don't have to arrive at the end zone all in one play. But God is calling you and I to begin to take responsibility for our spiritual life so we get alone to, with him where we can hear and then we begin to take responsibility. And ladies, you're savvy enough to look at all eight of these and apply it to your life, aren't you? Will you bow your heads with me? Jesus, we're so grateful that you love us, that you would come to Gideon in his time of need when he was hiding and he was 
hurting and he was cynical. And you would call the least of these to be great in your kingdom. And so God, I call, ask right now that your spirit would meet with men in this room, with women in this room, with young people in this room, begin to reveal to them that you want them to be great in your kingdom, that you want to do great things in their lives, that you want to kill the giants that stand before them and unleash them to be men who are free and who have great faith. If you're a believer in this room, as we continue in a time of prayer, will you just pick one of those areas and just commit to God, God, this year, I'm going to take responsibility. I would, by the way, use those words. I take responsibility for this area. You choose one of those that you'll work on this year. And you tell the Lord. But I realize that there are some in this room, you've never received Jesus Christ as Lord. You've never asked for the forgiveness of your sins. You've never asked for relationship with God. And God is revealing himself to you today. That, that thing you feel on the inside that's drawing you, it's just God saying, I love you. I'm coming to meet with you. I want to know you and have relationship with you. I want to cancel out all your sin. I want to make you a new creation. And if that's you today, then you simply pray a prayer like this after me. Jesus, today I'm saying yes to you. I believe that you are God, that you died on the cross, that you were buried in the ground, and that you came to new life. You rose from the dead. I ask you to come into my life and make me a new creation. Jesus, make me spiritually alive. Forgive me of all my sin. Wash me and make me clean. Today, Jesus, I'm saying yes to you. If you just prayed that prayer, will you raise your hand up? Anywhere around the room, you just raise up your hand high. I'll look here from stage and see if my eyes are open, but you just raise up your hand. We've got some people who will wander around, want to give you a card that helps you with the decision that you just made. You just hold your hand up, they'll find you. Awesome, all around the room. God, we're so grateful for you in our life, and we ask you, Jesus, to meet us here today. Lord, we, young and old, we need a good father, and you're the perfect one. You never sin against us. You're always for us. You never leave us. You never forsake us. You won't abandon us. You have not made us orphans. You're not displeased with us. You're not angry with us, but God, you want to draw us back when we have forgotten to listen to you. So we say, thank you, God. We need that kind of father, and we love you. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For information on Sun Grove Church, visit our website at sungrove.org.